This is the Frankly Daniel Show, and yes, I'm the Daniel in the Frankly part of this enterprise. Once again, it is my weekly exercise of our First Amendment rights. Thank you for joining me today, and believe me, it is an honor to be here today with you. Whether you're new now to the Frankly Daniel Show, or you're a longtime past listener, welcome and thank you for joining me today. I'd say I can't tell you how ecstatic I am to be here on the radio with you here today, but the truth is I can tell you how excited I am. When I last left you, it was May of last year, and frankly, I wasn't in very good health. In fact, my reason for leaving was life and death compelling. Now, I don't mean to be so dramatic, but it was pretty darn serious. Frankly, I never thought I'd be back to the radio, or maybe not back for a lot of other things. I was about to embark on a journey I knew little about other than that if I didn't stop and get immediate care, there wasn't going to be a whole lot of things I was going to be getting back to. So it was a very sad day. It was a troubling day. It took me a couple of days really to work up to calling Malcolm, my spiritual brother, and the CEO and founder of America Out Loud, and tell him I needed to leave the network and that I'd likely, I'd likely not be back. This was a very difficult conversation because of my deep respect for what Malcolm is doing for conservative talk radio across this nation, actually globally. And all the progress and excitement at America Out Loud made leaving it made leaving a really a painful departure. You see, a lot of my identity began becoming wrapped up in, in talking to all of you every week. And so uh, there wasn't going to be anything really to fill that hole after I left the station. Now, Malcolm is the ultimate optimist. I mean, he really is. And he told me that my spot on the network would always be there for me. And the fact that I'm here today is a testament to Malcolm's commitment to his people. I mean, you often hear this from, you know, people that are kind. Malcolm certainly is that. And the kinds of things they say, you know, there's always a place for you here. And and uh, don't worry, you'll, you'll beat this. And, uh, you, you know. So what was the problem I had to leave the station for? Well, if you allow me to bend your ear for a few moments, I'm going to go through that history. But it goes all the way back 10 years. Uh, And after that, I'm going to talk with you about all that's been going on over the last eight months, because I've certainly followed it, all those crises that are happening, in fact, today in our political world, like the Joe Biden DocuGate fiasco. How delicious is this, really? And there's so many things that are still popping up about all the dimensions to what's going on with these so-called secret papers that are showing up in different, in different locations. In fact, I can't wait to, to really dive into this issue with you. What a turn of events. But I believe there's maybe more than one story behind why this is happening now and that it's actually happening at all. Well, let's go back 
quickly through my my health record. I have a remarkably unremarkable health history up until the 10 years ago. That's when I began feeling uh, very poorly. I, I tired, often tired spells, uh, sweating spells. I'd, it was almost as if I was going through a life's menopause for some reason. Um, but I didn't think another thing other than I was just working hard and doing a lot of the things we were doing around the house to get it ready for sale, to move to, to Florida as where we are now. And um, we did make the move. As soon as I got here, I knew that I was going to have to have some back surgery. And before I was going to be able to have that surgery, I needed to go see a PCP and get a routine checkup, an EKG, blood work, all the things that you would routinely get before surgery. Now, I hadn't seen a primary care doctor in probably four years, and shame on me. Uh, I mean, really, shame on me. I have been in healthcare for 50 years. My wife, I've been married to for 40 years as a registered nurse. We have a son who's a registered nurse. For some reason, I was just too busy to get that routine checkup. Well, lo and behold, the uh, results from the checkup came back, and my white cells, which are supposed to be about 5,000 cells per a certain unit uh, of measurement, came back 50,000 white cells per unit of measurement. It was at that point uh, that the primary care physician told me I didn't need to see a surgeon for my back surgery. I needed to see an oncologist because I likely had leukemia, and I did. Now, here's one point of emphasis. Don't put those routine checkups off. If if your health insurance says you should get one, they're they don't charge you for them. Usually in most of your health insurance policies, you get that one routine one. Make sure they do blood work. Make sure they do an EKG on you. Uh, make sure they do those kinds of checks. I'm going to tell you about some other checks you should have done while you're at your primary care physicians. Don't let them skip over some things. These are very important. That's how this leukemia was discovered. And likely, I'd been suffering this leukemia for two years and didn't even know it and have I, we not moved and I needed back surgery, I probably would have waited another year or two before I felt really bad and went in to get this checked. So shame on me. But nonetheless, we got it checked. The next thing is to find an oncologist if you run into something like this, or a cardiologist if you have some kind of heart murmur or other thing that shows up in your results. And you need to ask around. There's, you know, there's a lot of tools today on the Internet about rating scales. You can read what other patients have said about physicians in your area, but you want to find somebody who is board certified. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about our approach. You know, I don't like to get the, the, the oncologist that's right out of school. They don't have a lot of experience, but they're very knowledgeable and usually up to date. We stay away from the ones that are little in their uh, elder years because they may not have kept up with all the things going on. I mean, cancer, and like with any of the cancers today, it is such a fast-moving field. It's almost literally impossible to keep up with things. But we found uh, a wonderful oncologist who was right in the middle, out of school about 10 years, goes to conferences routinely, something else to check on, and um, really had a wonderful uh, approach, a lot of experience, with all the routine kinds of cancers. And so when we came in with this leukemia cancer, she knew exactly what to do. 
We scheduled my chemotherapy and uh, immunotherapy. We went through that for six months. It was a rather, uh, uh, it was was a tough time, I have to be honest with you. Uh, Back in 2014, it, it wasn't a picnic. But we got through that. I went into remission. I was very thankful. I thought my, my life had come back. But the kind of leukemia that I have is called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And there's not a lot of it around. There's only about 20,000 new cases a year, and it mostly strikes men. So it's one of those things that, uh, you know, uh, men get burdened with and not so many women. Although women can get, can get this, this type of cancer. Um, and if you don't treat it, it, w- it will kill you. That, that's the bottom line on it. But there's no cure for it as of today. You can treat it, but you can't cure it. So we knew it was going to come back, and it doesn't always come back the same way it hits you the first time. And the second time it hit me was in 2019 it came back. And I had a very poor prognosis with the second one. But there's been so much research in the field of cancer. There's really so much good news and hope that that people can take now who have different kinds of leukemias. And I went through a, another a trial, these drugs I took at home. I didn't even have to go into the hospital to do it. And I, and I went into remission uh, about a year later. And I thought everything in life was just going marvelously. I did no problems whatsoever. And then something else happened. And this something else happened is the reason I left the station. I had a, a, a sore chest. I had a sore chest over my left breast. And it was as if I had bumped into something. I had walked the wrong way, ran into uh, something that was sticking out, or that I had lifted something over my head, and it fell back and hit me in the chest. Uh, But it was really sore. It was very painful. But it went away over three or four days, and then I didn't think another thing of it. And then, lo and behold, three weeks later, I had this searing pain again in my left chest. And I couldn't figure out what in tarnation it could be. Now, fortunately, I see my oncologist routinely every four to six weeks. And so I had a a scheduled uh, appointment coming up, and we talked about it. And she said, it's very likely breast cancer. I said, it's likely breast cancer? I mean, men, men don't get breast cancer, right? And she said, no, men get breast cancer. There's about 2,500 new cases of breast cancer in men every year. And I'm trying to comprehend what she's saying to me. Um, And she says, well, well, we need to go down and get you through all the paces of diagnostics. So I went down and had a mammogram. Now, uh, that's a pretty interesting experience if you're a male and you're looking for enough breast tissue to put in that machine. But nonetheless, I went through uh, that process. And then, uh, of course, they followed that up with, um, with a biopsy. And the biopsy came back and said, in fact, I did have invasive ductile breast cancer. Uh, and that was uh, er- in early May we found this out. At the same time, well, my leukemia is thinking about coming back, and it's sort of a dicey situation. So there I am, a male, 73 years old, and I have breast cancer added to a leukemia diagnosis. And needless to say, life got seriously complicated. Now, in comparison, you know, there's about 2,400, 2,500 males each year that get this breast cancer. And 
almost none of it is uh, familial or it genetically linked. It just happens. No one knows why it happens. Uh, of course, the number of women with breast cancer is pretty, just over a quarter million women every year in America are diagnosed with breast cancer. And, you know, and I'm so thankful for all the work they have done over 40 years in changing how we think about breast cancer. Not only the, the kinds of treatments that are available today, but they broke all the ice, all the very difficult ice on how anybody thinks about breast cancer and the stigma that goes with it. And I wouldn't have wanted to be a male 40 years ago with this diagnosis because, it, you know, it's tough enough now. I mean, when, when I talk with friends now and say I have breast cancer, it, you just, it, it's amazing to see the look on their face. They, they really can't believe that you can be a male and have breast cancer. Well, not only can you have it, you, uh, you can die of it. Of those 2,500 males every year, 500 of them die each year from breast cancer, and about uh, 4,200 women, uh, 42,000, excuse me, women die each year of breast cancer. Um, but it's also a, a daunting thing to go through because not only do you see your oncologist, you have to find an oncology surgeon, someone who really specializes in breast cancer, and there's some fabulous uh, physicians out there that this is the only work they do, and they'll get you through all the different ways to go about this, from a lumpectomy to a mastectomy, and we chose to go ahead and have the mastectomy because that cleaned out the tumor and it cleaned out some of the lymph nodes that were also infected, and then I had to go through 25 days of radiation therapy, which was also... uh, that was a difficult time. Now, before moving on, there's a couple of things I need to interject. If you're working with an oncologist and you don't feel confident or comfortable in what they're talking with you about, how they're explaining the things, how they're supporting you, how responsive they are, uh, change. I mean, if you're in a community where, you know, there's a lot of oncologists, there's two or three big medical centers, it's your life. Don't hesitate to, to check out someplace else, talk around, and just change. Your oncologist likely will understand if you don't feel comfortable with them. But don't hesitate, even if they don't feel comfortable, to make that change. It's really important that you find the right person. Uh, no two ways about it. Trust me, this is the time to be assertive. Don't worry about anybody else's feelings. The most important thing is for you to have trust in that physician and that he or she is going to guide you through this process because cancer care is incredibly complicated. And if you need to ask follow-up question, you know, uh, even if it, it... even if you think what you're asking is dumb or you need to have it repeated, for heaven's sakes, don't hesitate. Even if it's in a follow-up to say, when I was in last week, I didn't understand this. Could you go over this again with me? Now, they're going to give you some reading material, hopefully, that will help out with some of that. But never, ever feel like you have to worry about the feelings of your oncologist. They, they deal with feelings all the time. And they are big enough to handle uh, whether you're comfortable or not. You just need to let them know. 
and let them know uh, if there's something that they think that they're getting across to you because you're shaking your head, yes, that, that you're, you're not really understanding. And that goes for your spouse, too. And I recommend that, that you always take your spouse for you because two additional heirs is always important in, the, in these kinds of discussions that go on. The truth is you're going to be spending an awful lot of time, depending on your diagnosis, with that oncologist. And that person is central to whatever's going on with, with your cancer, whether you're going to be seeing radiologist or nuclear medicine or anything else. These, this person is the coordinator and is the one who knows everything about your cancer. So it, it really is critical that you find this out. Uh, and, and look at some of the bigger centers. If you live 50 miles away from you know, a cancer center like Moffitt or someplace, don't let the distance get in the way of, of your care. Uh, really, it's, it's that important. And come to think of it, I can give you a good example as to why it's that important. Uh, in my first bout with leukemia, uh, about two months into while I was getting therapy, I came bound with a rip-roaring infection, which happens in leukemia. Look, look, your, your white cells are the ones that provide protection against infections. And when you don't have any white cells because they've wiped them out with the therapy, or your white cells are dysfunctional, like they are in leukemia, because they're all immature white cells that are running around, uh, you're very susceptible uh, to infection. And my oncologist got me into the hospital right away. We got on the antibiotics. We stayed there for four days until the infection was gone. But her response was immediate and uh, as if I was her only patient. So you've got to feel comfortable with that person. I can't, I can't stress that enough. And your ability to reach them and have them respond to you immediately is important. But I got through that. I am cancer-free now in regards to breast cancer, and there's a very low probability of, of this coming back. And I am very thankful, but it took eight months to go through understanding all the different approaches. And this comes right back to this issue of the primary care physician. You know, I, I've been seeing primary care docs uh, for quite some time, except for this last bout, and they never they never palpate your chest. They never ask you if you have any, you, you know, lumps in your chest or if you had any pains in your chest. They're mostly concerned with your prostate. And it's one of those things that I've been on a bit of a campaign trying to get the word out to primary care docs through Twitter and a lot of my other social media that, that this is an important question to ask because although it's a very rare event, it happens and it happens in such a random way that you, there's no way to really predict which person is going to be that person who walks into your office and has said, oh, yeah, I've had this, uh, this pain up here. It, it comes and goes, but, you know, no, I don't think it's any big thing. Uh, if you haven't seen your primary care physician in quite some time, make that appointment. Get in there. Do that simple screening. And let's just pray everybody is cancer-free. Thank you very much for listening to this story. I hope it's helped you in some way to pay attention to your own health care. And I'd also like to say, don't let anyone talk you out of prayers. Prayers work. I honestly believe that prayers work. I had so many people praying for me through social media platforms, in my community, in my family. 
They helped my spirit, if nothing else. They helped me look forward to healing and getting better. So I'm a big believer in that. And that's the final note on cancer. We have about um, seven minutes or so before we need to take a break, and I'd like to share another personal story with you. This now has nothing to do with healthcare. This is just sort of a reality check that I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to share with you. Um, right after Thanksgiving, that weekend, right after Thanksgiving, we flew up. We were lucky, one of the lucky ones to get on a plane on, on Thanksgiving Day, in fact, go up to Maryland to visit uh, my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, who's just about to turn 95. And I was there with my brother-in-law and my wife's sister. We were going to be traveling from Maryland up to New York the next day uh, to take in some of, the, some of the sites. And we decided to go shopping at the grocery store to pick up some items because things are just darn expensive in New York. So up to the giant supermarket we went. And in this complex, there's all kinds of other stores, liquor stores, dry cleaners, everything else. Huge parking lot. Uh, and it's a very busy part of uh, Silver Spring, uh, Gaithersburg, part of Maryland, a just very heavily uh, populated area. And uh, we're in the grocery store, and all of a sudden, all the lights go out. The place is completely dark. Uh, you can't see anything. And then a few emergency lights came on, and we made our way out of the store. Thankfully, the registers were still hooked up to electricity. But when we walked out of the store, everything was dark. The place was completely dark. We couldn't even see where to go to find our car. We had to turn our flashlight on our phone to, to go find uh, the car to get back to, to my mother-in-law's. And when we got there, everything was dark. You couldn't uh, use your cell phone. Because the, the cell towers, the electricity had gone out. All the electricity completely vanished. Some of the other people had found their cars, and of course, by that time, they'd, they'd managed to, you know, turn their cars on, their headlights were on, we got some light that way. But it was uh, very surreal to be that kind of nearly totally dark, as if you were out in the woods. And it was overcast. In fact, there was a fog and a mist everywhere. So, uh, you know, there was no light coming from stars or the moon or anything else. It was pitch black. Now, my brother-in-law, who is a retired firefighter and a paramedic uh, from this area, in fact, that we were in, knew immediately that a transformer had gone out. A major transformer line had been completely shut down for some reason. And we're talking over a pretty large area of uh, Maryland here that everything was completely out. So... We finally got back to where um, my mother-in-law was. She, of course, was fine, but you know, we began to find all the things we didn't have available. She didn't have a flashlight immediately available. She didn't have a radio, a little transistor radio, or any of the other kinds of usual things that you would need because lights are always on. We never have to worry about electricity, right? So the next question is, what happened and how long is it going to be before they turned the lights back on. Of course, you can't call the power company because uh, landlines don't work and cell phones don't work because the cell towers are all down. And needless to say, this is a very unusual event uh, for this to happen in Maryland. Well, the lights did eventually come back on several hours later, but I'm going to play for you a 911 call that was made by a pilot who we found out was the source of this particular problem. Here's the call. I've flown into a tower to the northwest of Gaithersburg Airport. It's one of the uh, electrical towers. 
And believe it or not, the aircraft is pinned in the tower. And I don't know how long we're going to be able to stay here, and I don't know. Wait, are um, you the airplane pilot? Yeah, I'm the pilot. Okay, stay I'm on the line the, with me. Okay, and you said it's uh, the northwest part of the airport? That's correct. We're northwest of Gaithersburg. And you said that you're pinned? We are in the tower. We are you're still in, in the, the plane. And we are in a uh, – now we've got a, a light that's coming at us. And uh, if they can get a um, – uh, a ladder truck up here. I don't know if it can reach this high. I don't know. Okay. I'm very concerned about my passenger. She was hurt. Yeah. How many people are on board? We have two people on board. Uh, I've got, uh, I think we got head injuries from being banged around in the cockpit. Is the other person awake and breathing? Yes. I'm just going to stay on the okay. line with you in the meantime, okay? Well, that's fine. Um, I'm just concerned about our articulation and the the possibility that we could slip out of this tower and go tail first to the ground, and that would not be a survivable distance. And you do see the fire trucks and the police department there, correct? Yes. Okay, they're working on stabilizing everything and getting up to you guys, okay? Uh, bloody, I have a bloody nose, and uh, I, have a, uh, I also have a little scrape on the left side of my head. And here's what I'm worried about. We're getting some serious wind. Are they doing anything yet? They're working on getting up to you guys. I, I know I keep on telling you that. That's the only update I have at this point. I can try to get one of the firefighters over here and see if they have more information on their end. I'm only reading from the notes in front of my screen here. Well, the pilot had called on a, a radio that he had, a two-way radio, to call 911. It turned out that this single-engine plane had crashed into this tower. It was about 160 to 70 feet above ground, and it was delicately lodged in this tower with the nose straight up and the tail straight down with these two people in it, and the wind was blowing, and they were concerned that this plane was going to become dislodged and crash to the ground. The short of it is the power company turned the power off, and they got really creative and got a couple of ladder trucks to actually go up, strap the plane to the tower, and then one by one take these people down from the plane. Everybody turned out fine. The power went back on uh, just about uh, four to five hours later, and uh, it was a lot of excitement. But the one thing that was quite noticeable, you can't do anything without electricity. And the notion that we're somehow all going to live off of solar panels and lithium batteries somehow just doesn't, doesn't seem to compute. But we all got a very real, tangible lesson in what it's like to have no juice whatsoever for several hours. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with the other side of the Frankly Daniel Show. Fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. 
Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash outloud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Frankly Daniel Show. Well, I have to read a tweet, uh, read a tweet to you from um, Kamala, our favorite Kamala Vice President. Just a little bit ago, she tweeted out, uh, when POTUS and I took office, our economy was on the brink of collapse. Two years later, our economy and our economic plan is working. We have the lowest unemployment in 50 years, nearly 11 million jobs created, and wages are going up. Now, in a minute, I'd like to play for you a clip from just the other day, Joe Biden getting up and celebrating his economic plan about how inflation is coming down and gas prices are down and, and everything's wonderful according to his plan and it's working and it's one of the reasons he's thinking about running again for the presidency and it's probably one of the reasons the uh, Democrats in the back offices that put Joe in the presidency in the first place really don't want him around the second time and that may be what's going on with all these uh, secret documents showing up in the strangest places all over uh, Joe's uh, residences. But let me address this thing with uh, Camilla first. The lowest unemployment in 50 years. You know why that is? It's because people have stopped working. You know, the unemployment is factored on the number of people looking for jobs and the number of people employed. So if nobody's looking for a job... If they're staying home, they call it the labor force participation rate. If you're not one of those people out there, then unemployment goes down. In fact, if we get any fewer people looking for jobs, 
unemployment could go to zero, if you would. Right now, we still have seven jobs for every one person uh, available looking for a job. So they have, there's a lot of options. But this unemployment business it really is all the result of the Biden administration's approach to handling COVID during their two years, particularly when they pumped all this money not only with this uh, uh, rescue plan, that $1.9 trillion rescue plan, but it has to do with a host of other things. They've expanded Medicaid. There's a lot of other welfare programs. We have a lot of welfare going on that nobody's paying attention to. And people have just decided, maybe I'll just stay home. Or they've learned to economize during the COVID years. So I don't think there's any great news in this particular economy. As far as 11 million jobs created, you know, when you shut down all business and people are laid off or fired or fired because they didn't take the COVID shot, you know how many people were put out of work because they wouldn't take the COVID shot? And then when these people come back to work, those are now jobs created. I've never heard anything so false in my life. And of course, wages are going up because... The employers are trying to get somebody to come in. I mean, if if you can fog up a mirror, you're qualified for a, a lot of different labor positions. And if you've noticed, there's been quite a decline in our service economy in terms of the way service goes, in terms of people that are really into doing their jobs. Uh, I don't think there's anything really upside in the current economy. But we're going to go over some of the stuff that Joe said here just the other day and see if we can't debunk some of that. Good morning. Today we've got some good news. Good news about the economy. For the sixth month in a row, inflation has come down. Measured over the last 12 months, it has fallen 6.5% to 6.5%. That's down from 7.1% the month before. It's down from 9.1% this summer. Inflation is now at its lowest level since October of 2021. When we look at the at the, just the last three months, we see that inflation fell to 1.8% on an annualized basis. It's down from more than 11% in the first three months of last year. So the data is clear. Even though inflation is high in major economies around the world, it's coming down in America month after month, giving families some real breathing room. And the big reason is falling gas prices. My administration took action to get oil onto the market and bring down prices. Now gas is down more than $1.70 from its peak. And that adds up to a family with a typical family with two vehicles to a savings of $180 a month, every single month that stays in their pockets instead of being spent at the pump. Very interesting, Joe. Uh, you, you've, you failed to mention what happened to the Putin gas tax increase. I mean, from what I understand, the war is still going on in Ukraine is as vicious as ever. Uh, oil reserves are still uh, what they are. I mean, there's been no new creation of oil. We're certainly not, we're not drilling anything here in the United States. Uh, you've done a pretty good job of shutting just about everything down and clamping everything down and making sure that there's no money available to drill any new wells. You're not going to approve any more pipelines because of climate change, because of uh, your concern about the environment and having pipes different places. Uh and all the unemployment that was was about that. So, so why why do you think gas prices are down? 
Well, if you haven't heard, Joe, uh, you know, in China, they had boxed everybody up on this shutdown idea about COVID. I mean, if some somebody had COVID, they were boxed in a coffin and they just stayed there until they got over it. But there wasn't going to be any spread of COVID in China. Then all of a sudden, after these protests happened, they decided to open everything up. And everybody in China now has COVID because there's no herd immunity and they don't have a vaccine. I mean, the vaccines the Chinese put out are, are apparently terrible. They're even worse than our vaccines, okay? And so you have all this factory shutdown that's gone on in China, as well as other countries are having economic problems. You know, people aren't buying products, Joe. They're not buying them because they're expensive. And they've really tightened their, their wallets on all of this, especially on durable goods like cars and homes and stuff like that, where to borrow money has gotten ridiculously expensive compared to what it was before inflation. And you also act as if this inflation is something you're fighting that somebody else created. You created the entire inflation disaster. Inflation was just above 2% when you took over this economy that you claimed that was flat on its back. You closed everybody down. You pumped the world with money. And you even, you know, thank goodness that there was somebody that restricted you from pumping more money into the economy with this student loan stuff. And, and we're still having problems with that. You know, nobody's paying their student loans right now. They're, they're on a break. They're, it's free money right now. You don't have to pay your student loan. You haven't been forgiven that money that Joe had intended uh, to give to everybody. But all that interest on loans, nobody's paying it. On top of that, Joe, you forgot to tell people that now that the Fed has increased the interest rate, the cost of borrowing money, when you were pumping out that money at $1.9 trillion in this uh, emergency, uh, the economic emergency plan for America, we were borrowing that money at about uh, 1%. Now we're borrowing that money at 5 and 6%, and so our you know, debt to service ratio has gone way up. It's costing us more money to have borrowed that money. And what are we going to do here coming up? There's this concern about raising the debt ceiling so that we can continue to pay our bills. So we're paying more to service our debt now at, at 31 gazillion dollars or whatever it is. And we're going to be borrowing even more money because you haven't raised taxes high enough yet to cover the money that you're spending, which, you know, had all those boondoggles, all those earmarks and everything else that got shoved through that the Republican House is all bitching about right now, and rightfully so. And even though they just passed a bill in the House to fire those 87,000 IRS employees they were going to hire, of course, the Senate won't take that up, and it won't even get to your desk, Joe, for you to veto it. But we're going to double the size of the IRS. Instead of sending 87,000 agents to the south border, where that's where all our labor shortages and problems are. But, you know, you're, you're saying that, that if this had really gone through, had the House been able to fire those 87,000 people that you're going to hire for the IRS, that that would increase the debt by $143 billion dollars. And you've based that on the fact that by hiring these people, they're going to extract 
$143 billion out of taxpayers. Now, you know, I love this analogy where you're going from the bottom up and the middle out all the time. That's actually how all the taxes and all the other restrictions you've put on people and small businesses. But small businesses are the ones that are going to pay all these taxes that you've got coming up for. But, you know, if we don't hire 87,000 IRS agents, we won't have that cost either. And if you're going to hire more government, and that's what we need. We need more government employees. We don't have enough of them. You know, we're just going to, everything is going to be government. Everything's going to be central government. We're going to hire enough people that there's going to be one out of every two workers in this country is going to be working for the federal government. Well, it's ridiculous. But this whole baloney about the gas prices, and, you know, what you did is you drained the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You darn near drained it, Joe. And Trump had filled it. At, at like $30 a barrel was when he filled it. But now you use the most expensive gas we had in there. You drain the thing down. You're a million here, a million there. Before you know it, you don't have any in the petroleum reserve. And you said you were going to re- replace the oil in there. Well, oil's down to under $70 a barrel. Where's the replacement going on? And where's the money coming from that? That's another way that you've spent money. You didn't have to, it uh, didn't cost you anything to release that oil from the petroleum reserve because that was money in the bank. It was money in the ground that you released. And it really didn't make a, a penny's difference hardly in, in what's going on. But don't stand up now and claim that somehow you're responsible for a, a $1.70 reduction per gallon in gases uh, and, and, and at the pump. I mean, it, it it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, it went down across the world. But somehow this was all Putin's fault to begin with. Putin's pumping as much oil out of the ground as, as his little feet can pump, <laughs> believe me. Oh, my nerves. What else did you have to say about this, Joe? It's not just gas and food prices, though. When we look at what economists call core inflation, which takes out energy and food, we see welcome news as well. Core inflation is down to the lowest level in a year. Over the past three months, core inflation has come down to 3% on an annualized basis. That's down from more than 6% at the beginning of 2022. The cost of goods is actually falling as prices from everything from computers to used cars are coming down as well. And inflation in the core services is moderating as well. Here's a simple explanation, Joe. People aren't buying homes and cars and all the other expensive things that they were buying before. Now, the supply of some of these items has gone up, so that's good news. But as supplies go up and demand stays steady or goes down, so do prices. So I don't see a lot of good news in the core inflation issue either. But just keep talking, Joe. Just keep talking. When I came to office almost two years ago, the economy was flat on its back, as you'll all remember. Millions of people have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. Millions, millions who kept their jobs saw the hours and paychecks cut. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses permanently closed their doors. People were hurting badly. That's what we inherited. The pandemic was raging and the economy was reeling. Oh, oh, Joe, did, did you just say that you inherited an economy that was flat on its back because of COVID? I'd like to remind you, because I'm sure you have forgotten, 
that a lot of that was all due to blue state governors and mayors in blue cities and your own policies through the CDC and Dr. Fauci, even the military, Joe, because they wouldn't take the vaccine. You know that 40,000 National Guard and 22,000 reserve soldiers who refused to take the COVID-19 vaccines, they had their military benefits cut off flat. Not to mention we lost over 10,000 active military, and it may be even more as the accounting records are coming in. We can't even meet our recruitment goals right now for most of our military branches. In fact, it took an act of Congress to get you to lay off all the business with the COVID-19 vaccines, not to mention all the damage that is done by you pushing all the false stories. You and Dr. Fauci, you know, the guy who represents science. Oh, come on, Joe. Millions of workers were laid off in every particular industry, from healthcare, construction, just across the board, because they, pilots, you talk about the air, airline problems, Pilots were released because they wouldn't take the COVID shot. It is the worst public health policy ever, ever created in this country. And you've actually been the worst president we've ever had in, in my 73 years, that's for sure. In fact, Joe, I would go as far as to say you are the poster boy for term limits. You should have been limited after three terms in the Senate which would have been one term too many. Well, like many Americans, I was disappointed that the very first bill the Republicans in the House of Representatives passed would help wealthy people and big corporations cheat on their taxes at the expense of ordinary middle-class taxpayers. And it would add $114 billion to the deficit. Their very first bill. House Republicans campaigned on inflation. They didn't say if elected, their plan was to make inflation worse. So Joe gives a little chuckle there. Let me ask you, do you think Americans cheat on their taxes or they just take the deductions that the law allows? Certainly, if you can hire an accountant, a good one that knows the tax law, yeah, you can save on taxes. There's deductions that most of us don't even know about. And I've got to tell you, I've been doing my own taxes for the last 20 years with the software that I get at Costco at discount. And I save a lot of money every year because of things that are new that have been put into the software. They're just business rules. This is what software is really all about, is knowing the business rules and writing the zeros and ones and zeros and ones. Really easy to do. But you know, Joe Biden thinks that you cheat. He thinks you cheat. And you know how much he thinks you cheat? He thinks you cheat $143 billion a year. And he is going to hire a police force to go after you to get that $143 billion. Now, I don't know if that's net of the salaries he's got to pay all these people and all the uh, guns he's got to buy for part of them because some of us need to pay our taxes at the point of a gun, apparently. But, uh, but that's Jove's view of the regular American. He tries to pit us against each other. There's, there's cheaters out there, and we have to go get them. And we know who they are. They're the wealthy people. Well, let me let me ask you, do you know how many billionaire billionaires there are in the world, much less in the United States? Here's the real quick Google answer. Seven hundred and ninety-one billionaires in this country. Now there's a lot more millionaires, 
but that depends on how you calculate millions, whether it's in property or, or whether it's readily available cash. There's not a lot of billionaires that are sitting around with all that uh, cash underneath their, um, their mattress. But, you know, for under 800 billionaires, we're going to assemble 87,000 IRS agents. This is bigger than the Marine Corps. Well, I'm running out of time, Joe, so I'm not going to hammer you anymore on, on this wonderful economic uh, news that you've uh, sprouted here the last couple of days. But we are going to hell in a handbasket, and there aren't even any handles on this handbasket, Joe. So, uh, you know, you need to get a whole new shtick when it comes to talking about the economy. Well, let's, uh, let's switch up uh, topics and, and get to DocuGate, okay? Here's a short clip of Joe Biden in Mexico City talking about, uh, or answering a question, actually, about the documents that were found at an office that he'd used uh, called the Penn Biden office. And he's uh, responding to this revelation that there were classified documents found in that office by his personal attorneys. People know I take classified uh, documents and classified information seriously. When my lawyers were clearing out my office at the University of Pennsylvania, they set up an office for me, secure office in the Capitol. When I, the four years after being vice president, I was a professor at Penn. Uh, they found some documents in a box, in a locked cabinet, or at least a closet. And as soon as they did, they realized there were several classified documents in that box. And they did what they should have done. They immediately called the archives, immediately called the archives, turned them over to the archives, and I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon, and uh, there'll be more detail at that time. Immediately, there are questions that come to mind. This was a secure office, according to you, although many people had keys to this. In fact, many people that are currently on your cabinet and also assistants to cabinet members worked at the same offices, including your son, Hunter, and allegedly, there were even Chinese nationals that had keys to this office, an office that was largely funded by the Chinese through dark money, money meaning that no one knows the exact source of that money, somewhere close to 40 to $50 million was granted to Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, to support this office, including your salary and the salaries of many other people there, at this office, and it was an office you didn't occupy until uh, several years ago. You'd had two years out of the vice presidency before you actually ever moved into that office, and so these documents were someplace else for approximately a year and a half, two years, before they somehow ended up in that office. So let's just get that straight from the beginning. And while I'm thinking about it, I'd like to also say, what is this Maloney about you being a professor? You weren't a professor there. This allegedly was a think tank, which is a little strange to, to have hired someone who was at the bottom, the literal bottom of his law school class, 
that, that you were going to do any thinking in this think tank. You got paid over a million dollars, Jill, in this job to go do some speaking tours. But to my knowledge, you didn't teach any classes or any seminars or anything else, so I don't know what you were professing. But it's probably just like everything else you profess. It's, it's just a little strange and, and a little uh, part of fantasy land. Let's just call it that. Of course, Joe's uh, feigning complete uh, a lack of knowledge about any of this. He never heard of any of this before. He's surprised the documents were there. He says everybody did the right thing. First, you have to ask the question, why is your personal attorney? This was not White House attorneys. This, these were your personal attorneys packing up your office to move out of that office. Uh, it, most people are scratching their heads saying, why would you send an attorney uh, to, to clean your office up? What did you expect might be there that needed cleaning up by a personal attorney? Secondly, turning these over or calling the archives was not the right thing to do. This wasn't the book thing to do. Uh, calling the FBI, because technically it is a crime scene. You have no idea who'd access to those access to those documents. The FBI should have come in, should have taken fingerprints, should have done a lot of other things uh, that you expect them to do in a crime scene because you have no idea where these documents have come from, according to you. You have no idea who had access to them. They were in a manila folder, allegedly, uh, classified as personal. So as it turns out, the uh, National Archives then calls the White House, and the White House then calls the Department of justice uh, to look into this. This has taken 48 hours now. And even after that, there's no FBI that shows up like they did at Mar-a-Lago uh, for Trump, uh, you know, with guns and and a whole squad of, of people to, uh, to look around to go through your uh, home. How do you know that you don't have documents at home to go through all your sock drawers and your and Joel's underwear drawers and, and, and everything else like they did at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, my gosh, who would have known this? And then, lo and behold, we find out there were more documents at your home and in your garage. And who else knows where they possibly could be? Now, supposedly, all your other facilities that you, you live in have, have visited have been looked through for uh, papers, but who would have known that any of these things have been there? And today we find out that you have people out there claiming that this is the problem for the National Archives. They don't treat vice presidents like they treat presidents where they collect all these papers and vice presidents are left to sort this stuff out by themselves and that's why stuff like this happens. Except you're the only vice president with this problem. Uh, Mike Pence has been on this week and, and he claims he, you know, how he handled documents and they never even left the White House. So very, very strange stuff going on. On top of all of this, it turns out that these classified documents, which you're not supposed to have, were found on November 2nd, six days before the midterms. Now, this seems an awful lot like that laptop situation, Hunter's laptop, where that was Russian disinformation. Now, maybe these classified documents are also Russian disinformation. Who knows? It could be. I wouldn't be surprised if your minions are going to be out there telling us that soon. Here's a little sample of what they're already saying in defense of Joe Biden. There is another key difference between the cases, though. In Biden's case, his attorneys reported the discovery and cooperated by turning them over immediately. That was not the case, of course, with Trump. 
So in the Mar-a-Lago case, that really does appear to be a much more complicated case. Of course, we're seeing a very big difference in what the Biden White House is doing around this and what Trump has done. Night and day, you have the inadvertent, we don't even know if Biden had anything to do with it. There are important distinctions between this and the swirl of controversy around Donald Trump and the documents at Mar-a-Lago. What you see in that document's case is a textbook example of the best possible way of handling the discovery of government documents after leaving office that should have been returned before leaving office. What you see is the exact opposite of Donald Trump's behavior. Heck, who knows, maybe even Trump is the person who planted these papers. Here's Hank Johnson, who's a Democrat from Atlanta, who's very suspicious. I'm suspicious of the timing of it. I'm, I'm also aware of the fact that things can be planted on people. P places and things can be planted. Um, or things, things can be planted in places um, and then discovered conveniently. That may be what has occurred here. I'm not ruling that out. Alas, alas, I've run out of time. How did that possibly happen? Please join me next week for another Frankly Daniel show, and we'll pick up this topic and keep going on all the others. I wish you the very best in health and a happy new year, and I look forward to joining you next week.